sweltering summer of 87, 1887 that is, as the wigs sweated and the tempers flared, America's powdered elite hashed out a grandiose scheme in Philly. They called it the Great Compromise. Just fancy talk for a political tug of war. But it birthed the House of Representatives, a hothouse of democracy. This was to be the people's chamber where the states would throw their weight around by headcount. A nod to the big guys and a bone to the small fry. And every decade since, Uncle Sam counts up his kin and carves up the congressional pie. It's simple. More people equal more power. It's a numbers game with a whole lot of representatives up for grabs every two years. Direct from the ballot box to the big house, like some frenzied political carousel. It's a place meant to pulse with the heartbeat of the people, where the reps need to keep their ears to the ground or risk the boot. It's politics up close and personal, where the rule of thumb is to shake hands, kiss babies, and remember everyone's name because, in two short years, you're back on the stump. Fast forward to October 2023. The Capitol turned into a political Wild West show. The whole shebang teetering on a razor's edge when Kevin McCarthy got the heave-ho from the Speaker's perch. For three solid weeks, that chair was as cold as a D.C. martini. The air on the hill, thick with whispers and backstabbing like some Shakespearean drama with a twang. It was an insider's circus. The grand old party turned grand old punch-up, with the GOP's own slinging mud in the storied halls where they're supposed to be brothers in arms. One minute you're the kingmaker, the next you're a court jester. All thanks to the slimmest of margins that handed the keys to the kingdom to a scrappy few. Now don't get it twisted. This wasn't your ordinary congressional pure blackmail wrapped in a veneer of party loyalty. We've had nail biters before with major bills squeezing through by the skin of their teeth. This, this was different. It wasn't just about headcounts. It was a cocktail of the times, a concoction of shifting sands and political gamesmanship, where personal brands trumped the party line. What it boils down to is this. The 118th Congress could be that once-in-a-generation squall, a freak weather event in the climate of American politicking, or it could be the dawn of a new ice age in the House, where compromise is the exception, not the rule. So we'll examine the events that took place and what this might hold for the future in an episode I'm calling House of Discord, 21 Days of Turmoil in the Temple of Democracy and the Great Beyond. days, 21 hours, 9 minutes and 2 seconds, U.S. House of Representatives, this once stalwart body, found itself cycling through and eye-raising four nominees in its quest for a new speaker for the 118th Congress. The stakes? Hardly trivial. 
From October 3rd until October 25th, the House lacked its pivotal leader. Paralysis reigned, legislation languished, overseas aid sat motionless, and the ominous cloud of a government shutdown grew even larger on the horizon. As days turned into weeks, the internecine battle within the Republican faction unfolded, more reminiscent of a drama series than the legislative workings of one of the world's foremost democracies. And now that the circus has packed up and left town, sort of, and the GOP clown car has finally chosen its driver, a little-known backbencher from Louisiana named Mike Johnson. Let me, let me state this very clearly, and, and there's been questions about this. Let me say where I am. Anybody that knows me will tell you this is true. I am the Senate. Johnson is the one suddenly steering the ship in Congress. It's a twist that few could have predicted amongst the earlier chaos. Johnson was not just elected, he was unanimously embraced by his fellow House Republicans against the backdrop of their previous discord. This unanimous decision felt less like politics as usual and more like an unforeseen plot twist. Unanimous. Now that is a word that stands out. In light of the battle that raged prior, this unity feels almost cinematic in quality. After Kevin McCarthy's epic faceplant, Republicans sifted through the bargain bin of MAGA misfits looking for anyone who could appease their unruly Freedom Caucus. They cycled through Steve Calise, Jim Jordan, and Tom Emmer like contestants on The Bachelor. Each one got a rose, then wilted under the hot glare of reality. I loved you! Yet it's vital not to forget the intricacies of the plot leading up to this climactic scene. Jim Jordan was knee-deep in what was essentially the heavyweight fight of his time on the Hill, gunning for the Speaker's gavel with a full-court press that puts screws on anyone not bleeding the deepest shade of red. The moderates who weren't on the Jim Jordan train found themselves staring down the barrel of some serious hardball tactics. Take Marionette Miller-Meeks out of Iowa. She and others like her were getting the kind of menacing attention that had congressional spouses sleeping with one eye open and a hand on the family pistol. This wasn't your garden-variety political arm-twisting. It was the kind that made you check under the car in the morning. But if Jim Jordan's plan was to strong-arm the centrists into falling in line, it was backfiring with a capital B. Instead of buckling, these middle-of-the-road Republicans doubled down, their backbone stiffening against the full frontal assault from the extremes of their party. The idea must have been simple in Jordan's mind. Rally the right flank to corner the centrist, presenting his speakership as the only game in town. Fall in line or face the electoral guillotine. But like a plot twist in a tale of the underdog, the moderates found their spine. You think you're a tough guy? No, I don't. Oh, you think you're a tough guy? They drew a line in the sand, serving Jordan a cold platter of rejection. A clear signal that... His strong-arm playbook wasn't just failing, it was outright offensive. Although Jordan disavowed any connection to this pressure campaign, asserting his inability to dictate the actions of external groups to his cause, the damage was palpable. He was embarrassed, repeatedly, with this saga unfolding in public view, with each successive vote on the floor. The resistance to Jordan's candidacy swelled. It started at an initial 20 Republican dissenters, to 22, and ultimately 25. 
It felt less like politics and more like a crescendo in a symphony, reaching its apex with the house's recess declaration. The narrative appeared unmistakably clear. This wasn't just an election for the speaker. It was a counter-revolution. For years, there's always been this strange element of civil discord within the Republican Party, ever since the Tea Party came to town and created a Hunger Games of GOP politics that has followed a predictable script ever since. The hardline Freedom Caucus tributes battle viciously and take no prisoners, while the moderate tributes roll over and play dead. The far-right elements even had a name for these moderates. They called them the Squishes. But suddenly... The squishes had a backbone. The moderates' defiance not only signaled their resistance to Jordan, but also their demand for a more centrist speaker. In the annals of political battles, this episode will likely be remembered as a defining moment when the center held its ground against the peripheries. But then we ended up with Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson. The moderate from Louisiana's 4th Congressional District? Johnson, you helped lead the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Next question. Well, by all accounts, Johnson isn't actually very moderate. He actually checks all the boxes for today's white nationalist Republican Party wing. Hardcore social conservative? Check. Anti-abortion? Check. Anti-LGBTQ? Check. Anti-immigration? Check. Oh, and a leading promoter of Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. That's a bingo. And somehow, this man is to preside over the House with wisdom and impartiality. I think the problem is that there's a contingency of people especially in the media, who want this strange, MAGA-afflicted political group to be gone. They want it bad. So bad that they're blind to what's happening in front of them. And let's be fair. We all thought this was over with the election of 2020, but it remained on life support. Then January 6th came, and we thought that was the nail in the coffin. But the body was never there for the burial. Hell, we thought this was over when Trump boasted about all those cats he used to grab. But some people really couldn't care less about cats. Honestly, I, I really thought he was done when he called John McCain you know, the war hero, not war dodger, a loser for getting caught. But I guess we are all wrong. And so the press corps, in their infinite wisdom, were convinced that the House had an insatiable appetite for a main course of moderation. And nothing reflected this more than Tom Emmer's nomination. Emmer from Minnesota holds the title of being the third most important House Republican. And by some stretch of the imagination, it is a stretch. He would be the most moderate of any viable speaker candidate this year. What earns him this rare accolade? Well, he's had some controversially reasonable votes. 
at least by extremist standards. You know, like having the audacity to vote against discrimination towards same-sex couples. Oh, and he declined to turn a blind eye to Biden's 2020 election victory, despite Trump's best attempt at a Jedi mind trick on House Republicans. Emmer essentially is the unicorn of the moderate House Republicans. Yet, unsurprisingly, the larger House GOP ecosystem seems to be suffering from a chronic unicorn allergy. Emmer had high hopes, thinking he could masterfully straddle the chasm between the mainstream GOP and the hardliners. But the plot takes a twist again. The grand old Trump oracle wasn't impressed. Trump came for Emmer with the same passion I reserve for bad remake movies. He basically said voting for a globalist rhino like Tom Emmer would be a tragic mistake. Trump's fan club joined in, painting Emmer as some sort of Pelosian drag, accusing him of endorsing fake elections and essentially branding him a Trump traitor. In a desperate bid, Emmer started doing the political equivalent of posting old relationship photos on social media after a breakup, sharing snaps of him and Trump as if to shout, But hardliners were having none of that. So in a jaw-dropping anticlimax, Emmer found himself out just four hours post-nomination. Turns out there were just enough moderates to sideline Jim Jordan, but not enough to rally behind Emmer. As the GOP went round after round after round of this riveting speaker selection reality show, a single name began to emerge. And that name was Mike Johnson a congressional newbie without any major committee chairmanships. And this makes him a puzzling figure on the Hill. Yet, as with all good mysteries, the more you dig, the more it gets interesting. And now, all eyes are fixated on him. The one thing you might forget about him was he did introduce a bill in October of 2022 that hit the floor with a pitch that sounded like a blast from a Puritan's trumpet claiming Democrats were leading a charge to submerge America's youth in indecent and confusing content. His exact words, the Democrat Party and their cultural allies are on a misguided crusade to immerse young children in sexual imagery and racial and radical gender ideology. And saying the bill was common sense. The bill was called Stop the Sexualization of Children <laughs> Sorry. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I just like, I don't know. I, I don't understand it. I just, I haven't seen this radicalization up close. I hear about it. I hear about it in, in the news and all these places online, but I don't know. I just don't see it in reality. His bill aimed to prohibit the use of federal funds to develop, implement, facilitate, or fund any sexually oriented program, event, or literature for children under the age of 10 and for other purposes. And the language in the proposed legislation lumped together topics of sexual orientation and gender identity. It actually blurred the lines between basic sex education and coupled it with sexually explicit content such as pornography and stripping. I have the actual bill in the show notes if you want to check it out. It's, it jumps pretty big. It's only six pages. 
Then in his first extended interview as speaker, when Johnson shared the basis of his political philosophy with Sean Hannity of Fox News, he says, someone, someone asked me today asked in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. Well, the problem is this oft-repeated claim that the Bible is the GPS for navigating all of life's tricky legislations is more of a feel-good mantra than a statement of fact. The ancient tome spills ink on an array of themes, sure, but it's far from a step-by-step manual. It's not very forthright, and it's loaded with contradictions. So, like, in other words, what book of the Bible did he look to for divine insight on the IRS's budget? To put it bluntly, the good book is not a go-to source for every head-scratcher on Capitol Hill. I mean, you can thumb through that thing until the cows come home and still not on earth. A Christian stands on most of the naughty debates that fill the hollowed halls of American governance. Though the Bible may not be essentially a clear guide for American foreign policy or American economic policy or American constitutional law, it is a much clearer guide for Christian virtue. And there's one such virtue that I'd like to cite here, and that's honesty. Because that's something the Bible definitely isn't silent on. That virtue is a concept that seems to have bypassed the likes of Johnson and his cohort Jim Jordan. Jordan acted as the spotlight-grabbing sidekick to Trump's caped crusader act in Congress. When the 2020 election drama unfolded, Jordan played to the galleries while Johnson was backstaging the whole circus, pulling the strings in a bid to flip the election script. Johnson was the main one thumping the tub for the Texas lawsuit, a piece of legal fiction so devoid of merit, it would have been laughed out of any court not presided over by a kangaroo. Oh, the Texas lawsuit? Here's a quick synopsis of that story. After the 2020 election, Representative Mike Johnson concocted a legally dubious, quote, independent state legislature theory, unquote. It held that only state legislatures, not courts, could dictate election rules, a linchpin for challenging the election. What Johnson's fighting here was the COVID rules that were in place for the election. But the Supreme Court swiftly tackled this argument in Moore v. Harper. In a 6-3 opinion written by conservative Chief Justice John Roberts, he affirmed the state court's jurisdiction. This was a Supreme Court cobbled together with Trump-appointed conservatives, by the way, like Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Johnson didn't publicly respond to his constitutional quarterbacking getting benched. If you look into this, it's not like it's a high-minded debate. It's partisan maneuvering masquerading as principle. Johnson initially aligned with conspiracies before pivoting his stance. To break it really far down, he lost big time. And one of the thick ironies in it all was that Republicans raised no challenges over rules affecting their own elections in the states that they won. It wasn't like they were trying to overturn this in every single state. So really, Johnson's theory was a strategy, not a doctrine. It's just a convenient way to contest the outcome despite a loss. And the legal playbook has spoken. He also lent his voice to the echo chamber, parroting baseless shit about Dominion voting machines being rigged. 
when you have, you know, a software system that is used all around the country that is suspect because it came from Hugo Chavez's Venezuela. Despite the Capitol being stormed by rioters on January 6th, he and his Republican choir sang in unison against certifying the election. Johnson even had the gall to spin a yarn about Georgia elections being rigged in Biden's favor, despite the top offices being held by his own party compatriots there. Now, part of the reason the House Republicans took up to singing in this choir was because when it came to rallying the troops for the lawsuit to toss Biden's victories into the shredder, Johnson had a certain charm, and his persuasion technique was something like this. Good old Santa Trump is watching, hinting that Trump would know who was naughty and who was nice when he was back in power. But knowing this and what was coming out of the media, why didn't we see moderates setting their hair on fire? Well, it turns out the Capitol Hill chaos had them yearning for some semblance of normalcy. For moderates, it's like choosing between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, there's the potential backlash from endorsing a hardliner while you represent a swing district. On the other hand, there's the ongoing circus that is soon to be the unfunded government and global commitments that are dangling in the air, all while fingers and cameras are pointing at you. And Johnson, meanwhile, had avoided making enemies in contrast to someone like Jim Jordan. And let's just face it, people all over the place were just exhausted. The congressmen, the representatives felt the same. And rather than endure more and more and more of the clown show, the underdog sailed smoothly to the unanimous endorsement. Let's not sugarcoat this. Kevin McCarthy's ejection from his seat as Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives is a humiliation that hadn't been attempted in more than a century. And it was a national embarrassment that certainly deepened the Republican Party's descent into dysfunction and extremism in the eyes of many voters, maybe. But the fact is, the blame rests not just with the eight Republicans who voted to oust him, but also with McCarthy and the Democratic minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries. They failed to reach across the aisle to save the country from the mess we haven't even seen take place yet. While external factors have played a role, Democrats are not exempt from responsibility for the nation's current state of affairs and the ones about to take place. Their choice to prioritize partisan politics over national interest, especially by aligning with McCarthy's far-right adversaries, was a move that many, including seasoned Democratic strategists, found both disheartening and lacking in foresight. There was a straightforward solution to prevent the ensuing chaos. Democrats could have had a portion of their members vote present during the vote on McCarthy's removal. This action wouldn't have signified support for McCarthy, but would have ensured the House wasn't left leaderless during a pivotal moment in the budgetary process. The recent political choreography by Democrats aligning with a clutch of hardline conservative Republicans may appear to some as a savvy prelude to the 2024 elections, but the strategy seemingly fixated on electoral calculus rather than legislative effectiveness comes with a price. The revitalization of the most extreme elements in Congress. The result isn't just counterintuitive, it's counterproductive, particularly for a party with ambitions to enact its policy platforms in the short term. 
What we're witnessing in the aftermath is a Republican caucus invigorated by the Democratic Party tactics, proposing a fiscal shift that is, at best, a sleight of hand. The $14.3 billion earmarked for Israel, touted as being offset by an equivalent cut from the IRS budget, fails to acknowledge the revenue-generating proficiency of the tax agency. People aren't going to like this, but the IRS is like a golden goose. It's proven its worth, with auditing the wealthiest and delivering a significant return on investment. For each dollar spent auditing the top 1% of U.S. earners, the IRS brought in $3.18. For each dollar spent on auditing the top 0.1% of earners, it brought in $6.29. In September, the IRS noted that it recovered $38 million in delinquent taxes from just 175 high-income taxpayers within a few months, and it would be increasing this effort. So these proposed cuts seem like an economic step backward. On the environmental front, the far right's energy is equally unabated, seemingly indifferent to the notion of cross-aisle collaboration. The recent House decisions were to propose a severe 39% cut to the EPA budget and a 13% reduction for the National Park Service. They're also pushing for more Arctic drilling, all while entertaining a vindictive pay reduction to $1 for key environmental officials. It's $1 a year that they want to cut it down to. This paints a portrait of a party doubling down on a regressive agenda. This isn't just trimming the fat. It's an attempt to reshape government roles through a budgetary lens that could significantly alter the landscape of American governance. And this is why I say Jeffrey should have been willing to take a risk by rising above partisanship to save McCarthy's job, if not for the good of the country, then for the good of the Democratic Party. Jeffrey's decision to let McCarthy hang himself may have allowed the Democrats to feel good in the moment, but now they're staring down the most formidable of adversaries. This is the same adversary that has been running circles around them since Trump's stunning victory, the same one that herded them into the Iraq conflict under Bush's command, and the same one that has been on a relentless march since Gingrich's nebulous contract with America. It's the same adversary that cheered Reagan's cuts of the regulatory strings, peddling that illusion that wealth would somehow trickle down from the stuffed pockets of the affluent to pave the streets in gold. It's been on the rise, unyieldingly forging ahead since the mid-60s when LBJ dared to dream of an America where everyone's voice held equal weight, only to watch the South turn its back in response. And if this party wasn't prepared for that, for the last 60 years, what makes you think they're ready for this fight? For the eight Republicans who ousted McCarthy, his great crime was cooperating with Democrats to keep the government open and to keep the government from defaulting on U.S. debt. In other words, he governed. Never mind that the agreement McCarthy reached to avoid breaching the debt ceiling reduced the federal deficits by about $1.5 trillion over a decade and advanced several other conservative policy goals. And never mind that his refusal to shut down the government meant that our men and women in uniform, who these MAGA elite apparently love so much, will continue to get paid for protecting our country. The right-wing extremists in Congress would rather torpedo the government than run it. John Boehner and other Republicans who have been forced out by this group have said the same thing. 
that basically they want to light a match to the whole thing and then tell you this thing doesn't work when they're holding the gasoline and the lighters in their pocket. And in voting out McCarthy, Jeffries and House Democrats helped them to do it. McCarthy's failure to reach out to Democrats was inexcusable as well, but so too was Jeffries' failure. Not only has it empowered the Republicans' extreme right wing, but it also squandered an opportunity for Democrats to increase their influence. Jeffries had a chance to use the crisis to push for a more bipartisan governing model in the House, one that would have given Democrats more involvement in crafting legislation and conducting oversight. It could have been a transformative moment for Congress and the country. But if any informal Democratic overture occurred, it was too little too late. Jeffries gave a fiery speech on the day he handed the gavel to Mike Johnson. There are many throughout this country who are understandably alarmed at the turbulence of the moment, at the chaos, the dysfunction, and the extremism that has been unleashed in this chamber from the very beginning of this Congress. But this, too, shall pass. We faced adversity in the 1860s, in the middle of the Civil War, when the country was literally tearing itself apart. We faced adversity in October of 1929, when the stock market collapsed. We faced adversity in December of 1941, when a foreign power unexpectedly struck. We faced adversity in the Deep South in the 1950s and 60s when the country was struggling to reconcile the inherent contradictions between Jim Crow segregation and the glorious promises of the Constitution. We faced adversity on September 11th, 2001. We faced adversity right here in the House of Representatives when on January 6, 2021, a violent mob of insurrectionists incited by some in this chamber overran the House floor as part of an effort to halt the peaceful transfer of power. Every time we faced adversity, the good news here in America is that we always overcome. That is the power of American exceptionalism, that is why America is the land of the free and I understand and the what he was doing. He placed the Republicans on the wrong side of history. But this frame of mind is optimistic at best, and it's ultimately based on a faulty premise. While it's true that America has weathered many storms, resilience should never be mistaken for invincibility. Just because we've withstood past adversities doesn't guarantee eternal endurance. Our democracy, like any system, is fragile, mentally, spiritually, and institutionally. Same goes for our minds and bodies, and that can be taken away from you without recompense for no reason except the universe is indifferent. Think of it this way. Taking our resilience for granted is akin to playing Russian roulette. Each time we face a crisis and assume a positive outcome, history and probability teach us that Continual risk-taking leads to dire consequences. Eventually, the bullet will find your head. And with Johnson driving this clown car, we're sure to see more crashes, shutdowns, and debt ceiling debacles ahead. Gridlock and dysfunction will be the name of the game. 
We're spinning the chambers as Hakeem Jeffries and his party continue their political maneuvering. They must recognize that every pull of the trigger doesn't always result in a mere click. But it doesn't help that we live in an altered reality. America's economic pulse seems to beat with vigor that defies skeptics. The numbers sing a tune of prosperity. Over 13.9 million jobs added since the baton was passed to President Joe Biden. And as if that wasn't a headline grabber, the U.S. economic juggernaut roared with 4.9% growth in this year's third quarter, solidifying its towering presence on the world's economic stage. Against the somber backdrop of a pandemic, the U.S. economy is not just meeting, but outpacing predictions, even as the rest of the world is playing catch-up. But something serious lurks. A disease of distortion, a curious cognitive dissonance, plagues the American psyche. The collective memory seems haunted by the ghosts of the 2008 Great Recession, a time when the specter of unemployment loomed large at about 9% and homes, the very symbols of the American dream, were lost to foreclosures. And it's baffling. There's a nostalgia-colored perception of the Trump years, a period that saw a more modest 2.5% growth and a job addition of roughly 6.4 million. That was pre-pandemic, by the way, because I'm a nice guy. The chasm between perception and reality is not just wide, it's profound. A considerable chunk of the populace appears to view the present day as somehow languishing in the shadows of the Trump era. This disconcerting divergence between popular sentiment and empirical data demands introspection, but it's something more. As the Biden administration labors to sculpt an economy that echoes the aspirations of the average American, the question remains, why does the populace seem blind to these earnest endeavors? Experts will say there's a few reasons for that. A shared political discourse that becomes selective partisan forgetfulness, we'll say. And this is compounded by most people's obliviousness to the finer details of employment statistics, all while the public's defenses are weakened by the drip feed of TV sensationalism that preys on our primal instincts. This creates fertile ground for charlatans like Trump and his Republican cohorts that bombard our collective consciousness with a relentless stream of falsehoods. It's a psychological siege by those who've turned deception into an art form. But there's a strange lesson to be learned from Trump. The skill at which Donald Trump excelled was creating a master narrative to speak plainly to as wide a group of Americans as possible at the same time, even when the product was nihilism. There's no consultants needed for that. That's what he did in 2016. He struck his own counsel. And that was the key to his unlikely success. He repeated this in 2020, but with his unfiltered tweets and polarizing presence, independence had seen enough of a man whose role in history was usually reserved for hereditary monarchs at the end of a line of inbreeding. That kind of lunacy was traditionally kept secret, but in Twitter age America, it's a digital amphitheater. Yet, the Democrats seem to overlook the power of straightforward communication. They often fall back on a segmentation strategy that, while sophisticated, fails to connect with a broader populace. 
many of President Joe Biden's difficulties can be traced to his party's habit of thinking about Americans in categories. Suburban women, people of color, blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, Hispanic, sexual minorities, male college students, and so on. It's a fixation on labeling, a patchwork of identities that, while diverse, actually probably share more common ground than the campaign strategist would have you believe, and it does little to unite a populace already riven with perceived differences. President Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan should have been a showcase of widely supported reforms, but there's more than just a misstep in dialogue. There's a fundamental flaw in the presentation. Segmentation and pandering to niche groups have led to a disconnect where nobody ever sees the actual gains. The success of leaders like Barack Obama, who won majorities by speaking to shared American values, seems to be a lesson that's lost on them. There's a hunger for genuine engagement that transcends demographic pigeonholing, an approach that views the electorate not as a series of silos, but as a collective body with common concerns and aspirations. And this has allowed a minority wing in the House to push what can only nicely be called a Christian agenda, although I don't really see Christ anywhere in the details. And the Republican Party's transformation within the U.S. House of Representatives is evident. Historically, the party was led by figures aligned with traditional conservative values, those who prioritize fiscal responsibility and a robust military stance. However, recent times have seen a seismic shift, with the Make America Great Again ideology now dominating the discourse. This new wave of Republicans is characterized by their populist sentiments, disdain for the status quo, and a fervent desire to dismantle established norms. With such a congregation, the House resembles a perpetual whirlwind of disruption, and it's anyone's guess who or what will be its next target. The recent political history of the House underscores this upheaval. Within a single congressional year, Five different speaker nominees were presented, and who emerged as the final choice? None other than the staunch conservative who actively supported Trump's efforts to contest the election results. People like Matt Gates are lauding the quote-unquote upgrade in the House leadership and suggest that the traditional political forces, often termed the swamp, are in retreat. The ascent from Kevin McCarthy to the more MAGA-aligned Mike Johnson it's not just a leadership change. It's a testament to this movement's growing influence. The power dynamics within the Republican Party have undeniably shifted. If this transition from McCarthy to Johnson doesn't highlight the MAGA movement's ascendancy and its stronghold on the party's direction, then you're not grasping the full political picture. Yet, as Representative Pete Aguilar of California pointedly remarked, the House Republicans' quest for a speaker was less about societal growth and more about appeasing Trump. Aguilar emphasized that Republicans weren't looking for someone keen on growing the middle class or helping our communities or keeping the cost of health care lower. Instead, their focus was on who most fervently defended Trump's controversial actions, and their choice is a reflection of this priority. The Republican strategy for 2024 seems set on a candidate who's mired in legal controversies, 
whose Supreme Court appointees overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade decision and who contested the 2020 election results, and then chose a House speaker who opposes abortion rights and supported Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. This is despite voters decisively rejecting these stances in 2020 and 2022. The Republicans appear unyielding, aiming to impose their vision from the very foundation of the People's House, regardless of the public sentiment. The message is clear. The MAGA influence is not just present. It's in command of the U.S. House of Representatives, and it seems intent on governing, irrespective of public opinion. And Democrats seem content to sit back and wait for this posse to shoot itself in the foot. But how many times does Trump seem to make a fatal miscalculation, only to bounce back? The MAGA House members seem even more immune, and it should be easy to recognize by now. These outbursts, buoyed by nonsensical culture wars, alternative facts, and the erosion of democratic norms, are never fatal. For all of this, every time MAGA seems to be headed for the dustbin of history, it bounces up again off the messageless paralysis of its democratic opposition. See you again next time. Sometimes I listen to myself. Gonna come in first place. People on their way to work. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. Stuck to